Good evening, dummies. Thursday, July 8th, 7.22 p.m. Episode 154? Oh, boy. Or is it 158? Or is it 154? Or is it 158? Or is it one... I'm, I'm, I'm stalling, folks. It's not even any of those. It's 184. Dyslexia for Cure Found. I mean, Cure Found for Dyslexia. Welcome, folks, to Don't Unfriend Me, episode 184. I had a momentary lapse of reason. You know, episode 182 and 183, now that I remember which episode I'm on, had a lot to do with the Civil War and slavery. And explaining what the Civil War was about, it talked about statues, it talked about abolitionists, it talks about Republicans and Democrats and who most assuredly was responsible for Jim Crow and slavery and the KKK and other things. And this created a little bit of controversy, but most people who at least study history, this wasn't much of a surprise, but to liberals it certainly was. And tonight, I think I'll surprise them even more because, dare I say, I might come down on the side of liberals. And I think after you hear the show, you may as well. And because listen, this is what's important. We've got to get past this racist bullshit and this, you know, systemic white privilege, toxic masculinity, critical race theory. We got to change the talking points. We have to stop allowing liberals to control the narrative and we've got to get down to some real issues. And tonight we're going to have a few issues here that should be discussed. One of them is infrastructure. It's really important. We saw that in Florida after that building came down. The title of this is, If You Build It, They Will Come. No, not a cornfield, but infrastructure. It's been on the lips and minds of all politicians and citizens for the last 60 years. Asbestos was one of the big ones. Naval vessels, old office buildings, homes, where we realized that we had building materials, lead, asbestos, etc., that were inside the walls, and we had to renovate, and we had to replace Well, that's what infrastructure is all about. We learn this with lead paint. We learn this with mold and spores and other things. And we have a better, more effective way to build homes now. But there is so much infrastructure in the world today that needs to happen. And it's predominantly in the United States. We are one of the most underdeveloped major superpowers in the United States or major non-third world countries. We are behind the eight ball. Why can't we get it done? What's holding us up? Everyone knows it needs to happen. And if we can spend a cool trillion on defense, why can't we spend a couple trillion on infrastructure? I mean, honestly, we're all running on a credit card anyway. So we'll talk about that tonight. But episode 182 and 183 were about the Civil War and slavery and the Ku Klux Klan. Well, tonight we're going to talk about the, not the daughters of the American Revolution, but I believe they're the daughters of the American Confederacy. Two very diametrically opposed groups. The daughters of American Revolution I've worked with, they're amazing women. They have a massive lineage back to the American Revolution. They are kind-hearted. They're a nonprofit. They're all over the country and some of the nicest people I've ever worked with. And the CAD, the Confederate, or the Daughters of American Confederates, are a different group. And there's some things that need to be addressed. Predominantly, this whole statue coming down type thing. And I think it started to me for me when Round Hill, where I live in Virginia said that there's a a certain suburb that is going to rename the streets and remove Confederate generals and people in the Confederacy and rename the streets. And at first I was like, why? This is ridiculous. This is just more of the cancel culture. And then I started to research it a little bit. 
And there's something you maybe don't know. Why are there statues in front of our courthouses of Confederates? Why are streets renamed? How did this happen? What happened? Because we talked about the damage that went after the Civil War that went on until the 1950s or 60s. These stereotypes and the racism and the systemic racism that's said is in our system today, which it's not, but was back then. Why would we condone putting up Confederates? Yes, it's history. But there's a lot of things in our history that we don't do. We don't necessarily show you know, Custer mowing down Indians and having statues of them being beheaded, do we? We don't have the, all the Native Americans getting yellow fever and having the nurses uh, inject them with different vaccines. There's a lot of things we don't talk about. We don't show lynchings of the Ku Klux Klan. We don't show dogs ripping apart African-American skin in the civil, riot, uh, civil rights riots and the protests and the beatings that they had to take due to police officers and people in power, predominantly white men. We don't see the Crenshaw riots or the Los Angeles riots where the 50 cows were actually launched in the buildings by the National Guard. There's so many things in our history that we don't see. We don't see Japanese Americans in internment camps and statues of that. Why Confederates? And why are people so dead set on keeping them up? It's a really good question. I want to increase the dialogue in this country. And I'm so sick of hearing about racism and white privilege and toxic masculinity and critical race theory. Can we just stop allowing the liberals to control the talking points? And can we start asking some very serious questions? Is it okay for us to come on another side? Because we hear statues need to stay the same. Fort Bragg needs to be continued to be called Fort Bragg. And we heard that from Donald Trump and Republicans recited it and said, yes, we do. But do we truly know why these bases, why these statues, why these streets are named after Confederates? I think you'll be surprised. Lastly, I'm not going to try it. You try it. You guys remember that Mikey commercial, Life Cereal? Mikey hates everything. <gasps> Mikey likes it. And then the kids eat the bowls of cereal. When it comes to the vaccine, 43% of Americans don't have or haven't gotten their first shot. And yes, you can assume that most of those are Donald Trump supporters. Why? And what is it going to take for Joe Biden to swallow his pride and stop worrying about Supreme Leader numero uno? Is there a way that he can get Trump supporters to trust him to get the vaccine? And I think certainly a larger portion than is now if he just does this one thing. We'll see if he will do it. But like all things, you know we're going to be talking about infrastructure, as I said earlier. And should I do something about my fetish for infrastructure, or should I just cross that bridge when I come to it? Recorded from an undisclosed location. Always honest. Always direct. So sit back. Relax. Don't unfriend me starts right now. Well, dum-dums, I appreciate it. And dummies, if there's dum-dums listening, it's wonderful to have you. Dum-dums are the people who really don't hold a lot of my respect. They're the trolls. They are the dusty dinklemans, as you see here, of the world. But we do have the dummies, and the dummies are the don't unfriend me's. Barstool Sports has the stoolies. We have the DUMs, the dummies, the don't unfriend me's. 
Dummies is a esteemed position, something you always want to achieve, and you never want to be a dum-dum. So if you want to argue, try to be polite, try to use facts, and try not to be a baby. If people don't agree with you, that's just tough. You get personal, you start threatening, you start spamming and trolling, you're going to be gone and suck it up. It's not censorship, it's just that you're a dick. Other than that, what else can we talk about? Well, my name is Matthew Spear. I am the host of Don't Unfriend Me. I'll be walking you through this excursion tonight. Sometimes I am or I may not be your particular brand of vodka. I use a little bit of language. I definitely have different takes. And I tend to sway both right and left depending upon the conversation. But I am a conservative and I'm very proud of that. However, I try to have an open mind. And that is all I can ask from all of you. Where can you find me? Well, you can find me on my social media sites at Don't Unfriend Me Host on Facebook. That is my where I live, so to speak. I have 20,000 viewers now, 20,500 followers. That's pretty amazing. Thank you for that. How do we get there? Well, you have to hit like and follow when you're on Facebook. You can like this video when you're watching it too. Every time you do that, it helps. It gets me the algorithm we're looking for. It exposes me to different networks and different people. So just hit a like. It's really simple. You can love it. You can even put a negative face if you don't like it. That's fine too, but just leave something. Let me know how we're doing or leave a comment below. You can also find me on Instagram and YouTube. I'm trying to grow those channels a little bit, and I would appreciate it if you would stop by, say hello, and leave a subscribe on YouTube right here in this little red envelope. It would mean a great deal. If that isn't your cup of tea, you can go to don'tunfriendme.com where all of my videos and podcasts will be there for you to enjoy and you can go through the entire catalog. Well, let's get to it, folks. Remember, we can agree, we can disagree, you can love me, you can hate me. Just don't unfriend me. Hey, that's the milkman's kid. We've all made the joke. We've heard our dads say it when they go, oh, you have beautiful children. And you're like, oh, well, it's just because of my wife and the milkman. I was out of town that week. Well, We're going to talk about these daughters of Confederates and the impact they've had. And they have gone down through history for quite a long time. And there was a very viable reason in the minds of the Confederates of why they needed to create groups like the Ku Klux Klan. Now, am I comparing the uh, the daughters of American Confederates to the Klan? No. Very different groups, but also kind of cast in the same fire. So let's talk about it. While every statue in every town has a different origin and different meaning, we've all seen them, but taken together, the roughly 700 Confederate monuments in the United States tell a national story, and many of these commemorations of those on the losing side of the Civil War are a lot newer than one might think. You might think it happened right after the war to kind of remember and to heal the nation, put up these statues in remembrance of fallen brethren, but that's not what happened, and that's not what it's about. Listen, I've been to Bragg, I've been to Benning, I've served on both uh, bases and visited both bases, but I never quite understood what the importance was of naming them after Southern generals, more than to the fact that it was in honor and memory of, I guess you could say, brave men. It really doesn't matter what their disposition was on slavery, right? I mean, our founding fathers dabbled in that too. We can all ask Thomas Jefferson. I think he coined the phrase, once you go black, you never go back. Let's be honest. But when you look at these bases, there is a deeper-seated reason, and we're going to go over it tonight. And this might just sway your mind. I've got some information from the Southern Poverty Law Center, and although I don't agree with much that the Southern Poverty Law Center is, their database is quite prolific when it comes to statues and streets and names of schools when it comes to Confederates or what would be considered racist in today's age. 
This list of these monuments, the memorials, are spread over 31 states plus the District of Columbia, far exceeding the 11 Confederate states that seceded at the outset of the Civil War. Most of these monuments did not go up immediately after the war's end in 1865. During that time, commemorative markers of the Civil War tended to be memorials that mourned soldiers who had died, says Mark Elliott, a history professor at University of North Carolina, Greensboro. A New Orleans city uh, worker wearing body armor and face covering as he prepares to remove the Jefferson Davis Monument and we saw these photos on May 4th, 2017. We also saw these after George Floyd's death, where you would see these images of these statues coming down, not only from Antifa and BLM that would pull them down and deface them, not knowing why they did it. And isn't it interesting? They were told that these are racist. You have to tear them down. And that was the only reason. But there is something deeper seated here. Eventually, though, they started to build these Confederate monuments, he says. The vast majority of them were built between 1890s and 1950s which matches up exactly with the area of Jim Crow segregation. And according to the Southern Poverty Law Center research, the biggest spike was between 1900 and the 1920s. I actually checked with the Chamber of Commerce of a few of the states and cities, and these facts do line up. In contrast to the earlier memorials that mourned dead soldiers, these monuments tended to glorify leaders of the Confederacy like General Robert E. Lee, former president of the Confederacy Jefferson Davis, and General Thomas Stonewall Jackson. All of those monuments were there to teach values to people, Elliot says. That's why they put them in the city squares. That's why they put them in front of the state buildings. Hmm. Many earlier memorials had instead been placed in cemeteries. The values these monuments stood for, he says, included a glorification of the cause of the Civil War. However, there's an interesting point here is that white women were instrumental in raising funds to build these Confederate monuments. The United Daughters of the Confederacy, it's actually the UDC, excuse me, founded in the 1890s, was probably the most important and influential group. Elliot says, in fact, the group was responsible for creating what is basically the Mount Rushmore of the Confederacy. A gigantic stone carving of Davis, Lee, and Jackson in Stone Mountain, Georgia. Its production began in the 1910s, and it was completed in the 1960s. The statue of Confederate General Robert E. Lee in the center of Emancipation Park, the day after the United rally led to violence on August 13, 2017 in Charlottesville, Virginia. We all remember this. The Charlottesville City Council voted to remove the statue and change the name of the space from Lee Park to Emancipation Park. By then, the construction of new Confederate monuments had begun to taper off, but the backlash to the civil rights movement was spreading. Confederate symbols in other ways. In 1956, Georgia redesigned its state flag to include the Confederate battle flag. And in 1962, South Carolina placed the flag atop its Capitol building. In a 2016 report, the Southern Poverty Law Center said that the country's more than 700 monuments were part of roughly 1,500 symbols of the Confederacy in public spaces. The Southern Poverty Law Center always doubles everything. Cut it in half, and that's usually the right number. Protesters and city officials have gradually taken down statues in multiple towns and cities, and the SPLC estimates that as of February 2019, at least 138 Confederate symbols had been removed. Well, been removed legally through the city council, which is the way it should be, through legislation, not by a bunch of hooligans tying ropes around it, spray painting them and tearing them down, and then stomping on metal, doing no good or damage to the statues because they're have no idea what the hell metallurgy is all about and are too stupid to realize that their weight is not going to make that impact. But let them stomp and cry because that's what babies do. 
More statues were targeted following protests over the police killing of George Floyd. And I talked about this in Minneapolis on May 25th, 2020. On June 9th, 2020, protesters toppled a statue of Confederate President Jefferson Davis in Richmond, Virginia. And Governor Ralph Northam announced earlier that month that he planned to order the Robert E. Lee statue in Richmond, a former capital of the Confederacy, to be removed. And let's not forget, they took down and tried to and said they were going to attack Abraham Lincoln. They attacked Teddy Roosevelt. They attacked Jefferson Davis, a black man who essentially was one of the largest parts of the abolitionist movement and influenced Lincoln. They started taking down Isaac Newton. It didn't matter. If it was a statue, it had to go. And this is the mob mentality. If you can't participate promptly, impactfully, and in a way that actually makes a difference, just tear down anything to show people that you support them, that doesn't make much sense. And this is where my understanding of this stops. I certainly don't support any tearing down of any statue or changing any street. However, if it's voted on and the people want it and there's a majority rule, then fine. That's the way it works. That's the law. I don't care. But it's helpful in the midst of any conversation about this country's Confederate monuments to understand who put these things up, which also offers a clue as to why. In a large part, the answer to the first question is the United Daughters of the Confederacy. It's a white Southern women's group. It's a heritage group founded in 1894. And I've heard people say this in person, and I've seen it online. People say the Civil War wasn't fought over slavery. And I have to tell you this, stop listening to whoever tells you that. This is the lost cause methodology, which was actually created by the Confederacy after the war to gain sympathy and to actually change it to a Tenth Amendment constitutional war for the power to the states to decide on slavery, not slavery itself. It's bullshit. 120% bullshit. But before I took the time to dig into this topic so I could form a solid rebuttal, I'd ask people, but if it wasn't fought over slavery, what was it fought over? And the answer, like I said, is usually states' rights or money or northern overreach or the cotton gin or the economy or that France ultimately wanted them to. I mean, people say some crazy shit. But the secession papers written at the time of the southern states' withdrawal from the Union explicitly state that their right to continue owning slaves was the primary reason for seceding. How could anyone argue against this fact given that we have such plainly understood and easily accessible source material? And yet the argument persists, and not in small numbers. This is staggering. In a Pew study done in 2011, 48% of people surveyed believe the Civil War was fought over states' rights, compared to only 38% who said it was fought mainly over slavery. Now, here's the thing. There is no right to own a human being. It couldn't have been fought over states' rights. A lot of people say, well, it's our choice to decide. No, there are laws. You could sit there and murder your neighbor and be like, well, we decided as a collective that murdering your neighbor's okay. What is this, the purge? You don't get to fucking say slavery's okay. That's not a right. Because in the Constitution that you're protecting yourself from, that you're trying to disavow yourself from, that you're trying to wash away from the South and replace it with your own, says specifically that all men are created equal. And that's the way our country was founded. But where did this idea that the Civil War wasn't about slavery come from? I mean, it just doesn't happen. It doesn't come out of the ether. Perhaps the greatest contribution to the lie that the Civil War was not about slavery comes from a group called, you guessed it, the United Daughters of the Confederacy. And for 
RB, the gentleman who came on the other day and said that the conservatives did this, by the way, the daughters of the Confederacy most assuredly were, you guessed it, not Republicans. This group influenced generations of Americans, especially in the South, to develop a softer, more forgiving view of those who fought on the side of the Confederacy, of those who fought to keep other human beings enslaved for their own financial gain. So who are the daughters? Like I said, they're organized in 1984, and the UDC claims it is the oldest patriotic lineage organization in the country. Their website states their goals. What about the Freemasons? Okay, whatever. Their website states their goals, as among other things, to honor the memory of those who served and those who fell in the service of the Confederate States, to protect, preserve, and mark the places made historic by Confederate valor, to collect and preserve the material for a truthful history of the war between the states. The UDC is best known for its role in the erection and ongoing defense of these Confederate monuments. Their website claims the group has benevolent intentions and means only to preserve history. But looking at the goals above, it is clear their agenda is meant to reach beyond objective truth. Valor? Really? Can there be valor in fighting for the right to own other human beings? Only if you're dishonest about it. And what is being fought for? How the United Daughters of the Confederacy Confederacy tried to rewrite history. The UDC is most famous for erecting hundreds upon hundreds of Confederate statues across the southern United States and then fighting to preserve their placement when people pointed out how offensive and racist those statues were and asked for them to be taken down. But the UDC's other actions had an even broader impact than the mere placement of statues memorializing white supremacist generals. The group had a massive influence on the selection of school textbooks and history curriculums throughout the South. The UDC placed thousands of Confederate portraits and Confederate flags in public schools in the early 1900s. They hosted essay contests with themes such as the origin of the KKK and the right of secession. The Rutherford Committee of 1919, named for prominent UDC member and avowed white supremacist Mildred Rutherford, gathered members of the UDC and other Confederate heritage associations and produced a 23-page pamphlet called A Measuring Rod to Test Textbooks and Reference Books in Schools, Colleges, and Libraries. This pamphlet demands on page 5, quote, reject a book that says the South fought to hold their slaves. It elaborates in the coming pages with subheadings like the North was responsible for the war between the states, the war between the states was not fought to hold the slaves, and slaves were not ill-treated in the South. The North was largely responsible for their presence in the South. Now, this is interesting. There's a lot of things throughout history. The English did this. They would put their enemies' heads on pikes and put them on all four corners of the island. Now, this was gruesome and horrible, but it also sent a very clear message. Don't fuck with England. Putting statues and talking about history that's uncomfortable. Yes, it is uncomfortable, and it's designed to be, because history is an ugly and a horrible thing at times. There's beauty in it, but there's also tragedy. It's our responsibility to continue to tell these tales. And if we simply just neuter history, if we simply homogenize it for everybody, and not from the color white, but actually take out all impurities, we're doing a disservice to the future. What is past is prologue. And what that means is that if you don't remember the past, it's going to happen again in the future. Things like this pamphlet were widely distributed for decades, and the UDC lobbied relentlessly and successfully across the southern United States, filling schools with textbooks that avoided or outright altered the truth of why the Civil War was fought. 
In addition to the pamphlet, Rutherford also published a book called Truths of History that expanded on the pamphlet's assertion that the South had been wronged by the North and that the North was the true aggressor, that the war was not fought over slavery. In this book, she included a blacklist of textbooks that were not to be included in Southern State Schools curriculum. Well, sounds like the Nazis. Maybe they should have a good book burning after this. Hey, Eva Braun. Her influence cannot be understated. States, school districts, and local communities greatly respected the UDC and its affluent, powerful members. They easily bent a knee to the will of the UDC. A textbook used in North Carolina called Young People's History of North Carolina taught curriculum from 1911 and into the 1940s, and it's vague about the southern state's reasons for secession and contains passages like this. As a rule, the slaves were comfortably clothed, given an abundance of wholesome food, and kindly treated. <laughs> Occasionally, some hard-hearted master or bad-tempered mistress made the lot of their slaves a hard one, but such cases were not common. Cruel masters and cruel mistresses were scorned, then just as much as men and women who treat animals cruelly are now scorned. These slaves were brought into the colonies fresh from a savage life in Africa and in two or three generations were changed into respectable men and women. This fact shows better than any words can how prudently and how wisely they were managed, unquote. Fuck you, lady. There is so much wrong in that statement. And listen, I'm not a sensitive Nancy. I don't believe that we should just get triggered on everything. I get triggered when people are stupid and I can't get through to them and I just lose my shit. But that is racism. Words have consequences and they are extremely important. You just compared black people to animals. This fucking mentality is still alive today because we failed after the Civil War. We were so happy for it to be over and to stop burying our brothers and sisters and our uncles and our fathers and our sons that we forgot to do the one thing we should do, which was honestly wait a generation to give the South car blanche to kind of go back to normal. We should have brought Northern teachers down into the South we should have helped people realize why racism is wrong and literally start with a generation like the Democrats are doing now to indoctrinate an entire generation slowly over 20 years rather than doing it in 20 days. We made a huge mistake. And this is why these Confederate groups rose up. This is why the Klan rose up. This is why the daughters rose up. But why does this matter? A not insignificant segment of the U.S. population believes that the bloodiest conflict fought on American soil was fought over a vague, nebulous idea about states' rights. That the North was an aggressor and the South a hapless yet heroic victim. That slavery was peaceful and enjoyable for the enslaved. And that the Ku Klux Klan was reasonable, if not esteemable, organization. Generations of American children attending public school in the South, estimated to be close to 70 million in number, were taught... These twisted narratives between 1889 and 1969, these were the height of the Jim Crow eras. Based on the 2011 Pew study and conversations held anywhere in the southern United States, the myths persist today. These false narratives cemented in the generations of minds that the idea that there were the ones who really understood the truth and that the North was absolutely just off their rocker. When people spout these falsehoods, they do it with raging hubris. The lies pour out with haughty certainty and an attitude of intellectual superiority and a total unwillingness to discuss the contradictions inherent in their claims. Kind of sounds like me. At least I'm on the right side of history. 
You can ask states' rights to do what until you're blue in the face, but they won't give you an answer. This attitude, this certainty of rightness bleeds into every aspect of our social and political lives. It is so reminiscent of liberals. It is so reminiscent of people who believe that Christianity should never be questioned, that the word of God should never be questioned, that we shouldn't even think about anything other than complete loyalty and deference. And I can understand that. But what you cannot do is that if we had a God that said slavery is okay, you should question those things. There is a difference between right and wrong, and human beings learn it at a very early age, and those that don't either spend the rest of their life in prison or society takes care of them. Slavery is wrong. Anybody who's watched any movie in regards to that period knows it's wrong. The color purple, roots, these movies show what happened. If you're not going to read a book and feel how palpable it is, if you're not going to listen to the letters in Ken Burns from some of the slaves and the reaction they had to Union soldiers who freed and liberated them, there's something just deeply meaningful about it. And to trivialize it and say it was fought over states' rights is a fallacy. These people are ill-informed. They're condescending. And they're aggressors who don't understand you or your ancestors or basic history. If you believe slavery wasn't even that bad, that maybe it was even beneficial, how do you react when someone tries to have a conversation with you about systemic racism? Do we just simply deny that systemic racism never existed in this country? Because that's a complete lie. It certainly did. And yes, we are milking the proverbial teat when it comes to systemic racism now, but it did have a prominent place in our history up until recently. How do you respond when another unarmed black person is killed by police? Do you simply say that person's a thug? Is that your first reaction? Or do you say, I'm going to wait for the facts to come out? Isn't that important? There are people who say that was just a white cracker. It was a racist cop. There are people who say it was just a black thug and he was in a gang. And then there's people also who say, I really want to wait to hear. I want to see the police recording. I want to hear some of this testimony because I don't know because I wasn't there. How do you vote? If you hold a position of power, whether in government or the private sector, how do your beliefs influence your hiring decisions? Have you asked yourself? It's not unconscious bias. It's just you asking yourself, do I reflect my community? I'm a hiring manager. My stores absolutely should reflect my community. My company deals with every race, color, and creed, that should reflect where I grow up, where I live, where I do business, where I lay my head. Why not? And if it doesn't, why doesn't it? Truth matters. United Daughters of the Confederacy still exist today, and though their message has softened and their influence has waned somewhat over the years, they continue to propagate falsehoods. They remain in many circles a respected organization. Their work has influenced millions of Americans to believe a narrative that is easily verifiable as false by simply reading the primary materials of the era about which they claim to know the real truth. It's time we recognize the harm this group has done and leave them behind in history where they belong. This isn't Buck Rogers. This isn't Nemo. This isn't about Flash Gordon. These writings are fiction. The lost cause is a lost cause, and it's not true, and it never has been true. So does that change your mind? Let me know below. Do you look at it differently now? Do you see these statues as possibly a threat 
to African Americans. That they're a symbol in front of the courthouses into the city capitals that basically say, what do they say? Well, if I was a black man and I was going on trial and I was walking into that courthouse, I would look at that statue and say, holy shit, I'm about to be hung. Wouldn't you? What if you went into a city and you were held for trial and you found that Allah, there was a statue of Allah, and when you got there, the jury that you had were all in hijabs or in Egyptian, 100% Egyptian cloth. Would you be concerned as a Christian? Well, that's what we're talking about. A lot of black people face 100% white juries. It doesn't happen as much as it used to. But back then it did all the time. Can't we admit that these statues make people uncomfortable? Because we love our grandparents. We love our great-great-grandparents. We love our families. And we would never want anyone to disparage our good name. And when you have a Confederate general who believed in slavery and a Confederacy that fought to keep black people under their thumb, almost 4 million people, you just might be a little raw about it too. If you're a Jewish American, you understand when you see a swastika how that makes you feel. I have a lot of friends who are Native American. And when I see people wear the Union and the Custer type clothing and reenactments and the saber and have this type of superiority that they won against Native Americans, when honestly disease won against the Native Americans and the cavalry soldiers got their asses handed them more often than not because there was only 10% of the Native Americans left. And although the rifle and the black powder ultimately would have taken over, Native Americans fought valiantly and deserve our respect, certainly much better than a reservation. Does this make me not a Republican to you? Does this make me not a conservative, that I'm a traitor to my race because I believe Confederate statues make people uncomfortable? Then I'm sorry. I am guilty as charged. But I want to be clear. I don't believe in lynching. I don't believe in mob justice either. There is a time and a place to have this conversation, and it certainly is now, and it needs to be handled in the courtroom with our elected officials, and people need to speak up and have a voice. And if 51% majority say they need to come down, then I will follow and comply. But honestly, I will never, ever worry about a statue more than a human being's feelings. question is, why don't you? I'm not going to try it. You try it. Mikey likes everything. President Biden, he missed his Independence Day target of getting first shots into the arms of 70% of American adults. I know Dr. Fauci had a hissy fit. If he wants to convince the vaccine hesitant to get immunized, especially vaccine hesitant Republicans, there's a simple way to do so. Why don't you give Donald Trump the credit he deserves for vaccines? Former Presidents George W. Bush, Barack Obama, Bill Clinton, and Jimmy Carter were all invited to record public service ads urging Americans to get vaccinated. The only former president not included was the one whose voice could have made the biggest difference, Trump. This makes no sense. We can't keep ignoring that Trump was a president, and we honestly deserve the, he deserves the respect of the office. Today, It is Trump supporters who are most likely to remain unvaccinated. The 20 U.S. states with the highest vaccination rates all voted for Biden in 2020. 
Meanwhile, most of the 22 states with the lowest vaccination rates went for Trump, including almost all of the states with vaccination rates below 50%. In conservative Mississippi, only 38.3% of adults are fully vaccinated, compared with 76.1% in liberal Vermont. I don't know if you want to call Mississippi exactly fully Republican. I don't know. It might get infected by Georgia. But a new post-ABC News poll finds that while 86% of Democrats say they have received at least one dose, only 45% of Republicans have. And while just 6% of unvaccinated Democrats say they aren't likely to get vaccinated, 47% of Republicans say they probably or definitely will not get shots against the virus. And I'm one of them. But it's not because of Joe Biden, and it's not because Donald Trump told me to do it or didn't do it. I am a healthy individual. I take care of my body, and I believe that if I get something like this, I will fight it, and I will conquer it. And if not, I will go to the doctor, and I will get help. I don't have the underlying conditions that should make me worry. Now, does that bother you? Well, get your damn vaccine, and then who cares? You don't have to worry about it. I do it for a different reason. I'm a little hesitant I don't know what the hell the mRNAs are. I've studied it. I don't understand it. And I am honestly a little nervous about the long-term effects more than I am about something that has like a 99.2% survival rate. But if you want to get some Republicans more than zero over that finish line, Biden's going to have to do something. And if he wants to convince those Americans to get immunized, he should remind them that Operation Warp Speed, the greatest public health achievement in human history, period was also the greatest achievement of the Trump presidency. Trump invested $10 billion in six vaccine candidates, purchasing hundreds of millions of doses of vaccines before they were proven and clearing away regulatory hurdles. All three vaccines that eventually received FDA approval received critical support from his administration, no matter what Johnson & Johnson and Pfizer say. He provided $955 million to support the development of Moderna's vaccine and another $1.5 billion to support large-scale manufacturing and distribution of the vaccine. He also pledged $1.95 billion for the purchase and nationwide distribution of 100 million doses of Pfizer's vaccine at a $1.46 billion to purchase 100 million doses of Johnson & Johnson's vaccine. And he provided $1.6 billion in support for Novavax whose vaccine has been shown to be 90.4% effective and plans to file for FDA authorization in the third quarter. This is not including his 384 pieces of legislation in four months that directly impacted COVID. The most and largest amount of any type of legislation pushed through at any period in our history. Before leaving office, Trump had contracted to buy at least 800 million vaccine doses with delivery by July 31st, enough to vaccinate every single American. He put us on track to end the pandemic and get our lives back. But instead of giving Trump credit for his accomplishment, Biden has tried to play down Trump's role, falsely declaring that, quote, my predecessor, as my mother would say, God love him, failed to order enough vaccines. Indeed, Biden has tried to take credit not only for vaccine distribution, but also vaccine development, noting in a recent speech that the science was done under Democratic and Republican administrations. This is childish. Operation Warp Speed gave us the vaccines. Trump led it. It was his achievement. Full stop. Acknowledging this fact does not require Biden to gloss over what he considers Trump's other manifold of failures in office or his terrible behavior after the election. 
Biden is the one who promised to usher in a new era of bipartisanship. So why the fuck can he admit his Republican predecessor's role in delivering the vaccines that are saving us was Trump's? If Biden isn't comfortable touting Trump's achievement, he could ask Trump to do it. Does Biden really think that voters in Trump states are going to be persuaded by appeals from Carter, Clinton, and Obama to get immunized? They're the fucking enemy, according to them. Apparently, Biden considered asking for Trump's help. In March, he said, quote, I discussed it with my team, and they say the thing that has more impact than anything Trump would say to the MAGA folks is what the local doctors, what the local preachers, what the local people in the communities say. No, that's not true. Indeed, an appeal from Trump may very well be the only thing that would convince some of his supporters to get their shots. Of course, Trump does not need to wait for an invitation from Biden. He could set up vaccination sites at his rallies, which would give him an opportunity to tout his administration's singular success in saving us from COVID-19. And Republican governors in pro-Trump states could record public service ads for their own featuring Trump urging his supporters to get the vaccines his administration produced. But though those efforts might be useful, it is the sitting president's responsibility to convince Americans to get immunized. And if it is Donald Trump's fault why COVID-19 has happened and 4 million deaths worldwide, well, then it certainly is Biden's fault for not being able to get MAGA supporters to get vaccinated. I mean, good for the goose is good for the old man who can hardly sit up straight. While the Biden administration deserves credit for the effect distribution of the vaccines, they've done a great job. There's no doubt about it. I don't care what anyone says. They have done an amazing job. It was President Trump who made the vaccines possible. The message to vaccine-hesitant Republicans should be, if you trust Trump, get your Trump vaccine. President Biden missed his uh, Independence Day target and getting all these shots for these people because he doesn't simply care enough, only really focuses on the political points. What is it going to take? Is it going to take a resurgence of this? Does he truly believe the vaccine is best for all people or only Democrats? Joe Biden has a responsibility, and that responsibility most assuredly is to get as many people vaccinated as possible. And you're not going to get everybody. You're not going to get some people like me. But the people who truly are on the fence, who take every word that Donald Trump says as some of the most important things that have ever been said by any human being, then you've got to empower him. You've got to give him a national stage. And maybe, just maybe, can we imagine, because Obama failed to do it with Bush, Bush failed to do it with Clinton, what if Joe Biden stood up on the national stage with Donald Trump and together they said, every single American needs to get this vaccine. This goes far beyond partisan politics. I have a good feeling that common sense Republicans, conservatives who are hesitant, might just feel a little bit better when someone they trust utters those words. I'm still not fucking getting it. If you build it, they will come. South Florida officials on Wednesday called off the search for survivors of the June condominium tower collapse, saying there was no longer any hope of pulling someone alive from the ruins of the flattened building. Crews who have extracted the remains of 54 people from the mostly concrete and steel rubble of the Champlain, Champlain Towers south during round-the-clock searches will transition to a recovery operation as of midnight Eastern Daylight Time, and what that means is recovering bodies. This is a horrible tragedy. It's something that could have been avoided, and we will find the paperwork will tell us the story. People were trying to save a nickel. They knew that this building needed to be rehabbed, that it was unsafe, 
But the thing is, what can we expect now in the future? Besides more bodies being pulled out and the hundreds that are still missing and the loved ones that are just waiting, it could take months depending upon weather and depending on a lot of things. But what can we expect? Is this just a one-off or is this something more? Well, I will tell you, things like this happen in groups clusters plane crashes prove that even though we haven't had one since like what 2012 infrastructure is single-handedly the most important thing we can do to maintain our superiority in the world today we have to have safe reliable transportation homes water air and all of those other things that we hear all the time I don't care what your position on global warming is. Bridges shouldn't be falling down on top of us during 9 to 5 rush hour traffic. Buildings should not be falling in the dead of night. Buildings that should be staying up for thousands of years. It's unacceptable. And it's something that has never happened before. Yes, buildings have fallen, but not like this. This is much, much different. From left-wing Democrat to right-wing Republican, everyone loves infrastructure. I haven't heard anyone say, infrastructure stupid. We shouldn't spend any money on it. Ever. We disagree on the price tag or the timeline or what gets fixed, but infrastructure overall as a whole, we agree that it's important. We all want these safe bridges, smooth roads, and world-class airports. The roads in Round Hill have been being worked on for six months, and every time they work, it gets worse. Literally, it's where they test the missiles. I have to have a Humvee to get through the amount of bumps and breaks in the road. It's almost like we're doing more harm than good. Why can't we have all of these things that we want? Why are American bridges falling down? Why are roads riddled with potholes and many other major airports dilapidated? Can't the United States build or repair infrastructure like European European countries and Asian countries do? Anyone seen Saudi Arabia? Anyone seen Kuala Lumpur? Anyone seen China, for fuck's sakes? It's beautiful. I mean, what they're building is incredible. Dubai is like... If you could imagine a technologically driven heaven, it's it. It's like Blade Runner with a paint job. It's unbelievable. The answer is not really complex. America doesn't have better infrastructure because of two groups and only two groups. And I don't care what anyone says. This is it. It's environmental activists and the labor unions. What has happened to the Keystone XL pipeline? It was a project to bring oil from Canada to refineries in the U.S. and is a typical example of how these groups shut it down. According to environmental groups, this vital piece of infrastructure is a guaranteed disaster. Never mind that pipelines, by all measures, are a much safer way to transport oil than rail cars and are literally underneath us, hundreds of thousands of miles already laid underneath us. But you say the words fossil fuel and the Greens are against it. In November 2018, in the U.S. District Court of Montana, Judge Brian Morris, an Obama appointee, halted Keystone's construction for the third time. The first final environmental review approving construction was released by Hillary Clinton's State Department in 2011. It concluded that the environmental impact would not be significant. A second final environmental review also approved the project. It was released in 2014 by John Kerry's State Department and also foresaw little environmental impact. If you're going to trust Trump on vaccines, can you trust the lefties, liberals, please, that this has barely any impact? I don't care what the Native Americans say. They cry about everything. If an eagle loses a feather, the whole world's going to fucking end. Judge Morris's third review may be the charm for the Greens. At this point, 
a full decade into the process, it's hard to see the pipeline ever being completed. Keystone is a case study of what Brookings Institute scholar Robert Kagan calls adversarial legalism, environmental reviews of every aspect of every public improvement. In a given year, the federal government produces 500,000 environmental assets. Individual states and cities add thousands more, and this isn't new. And now that the third environmental clampdown has happened, we have Joe Biden, who's canceled it altogether. Even though it was completely funded and above schedule, it is now halted again with tens of thousands of jobs thrown by the wayside. A routine dredging project in Oakland Harbor began in 1970. It wasn't completed until the mid-1990s because of the legal and environmental challenges. Four such challenges gunned up a water desalinization plant urgently needed in dry San Diego. That process is started in 2003 and was needlessly delayed for 12 years. Simply raising New Jersey's Bayonne Bridge roadway a bit to allow taller ships through, a movement that had almost no environmental impact since it was merely an adjustment of an already built site, proceeded only after five years of review and 20,000 pages of environmental studies. Americans like to think of themselves as more freewheeling and less regulated than Europe and Asian countries, but when it comes to infrastructure, it just isn't true. Anyone who's looking to really understand what a U.S. city could look like, go to Houston. Houston doesn't have any zoning laws. You can literally have an apartment building next to a skyscraper, next to a church, and a 7-Eleven. And that's the way they like it. But with all the deregulation, people are allowed to build and do what they want, and it takes care of itself. Europe and Asia don't have redundant layers of city, state, and federal bureaucracies that we do. As a result, their ideas get proposed, approved, and built in the time it takes us to agonize over a single environmental impact study. And to add insult to injury, their roads, bridges, subways, and airports are much more cheaper to construct. A 2000 study by Israeli mathematician Alan Levy found that a mile of subway track in Japan or continental Europe typically costs 200 to $450 million per mile. Vancouver, Canada comes in lower than that. The Canada line, about 40% underground railway system in a densely populated area, costs $130 million per mile. Even on the high end, London's underground Jubilee line, extension of the tube, which opened in 1999, costs $640 million per mile. But in New York City, the Second Avenue subway, a two-mile extension of an existing line, took 10 years and cost $2.4 billion per mile. And that's not an anomaly. The East Side Access Project, connecting Long Island residents to the east side of Manhattan, is set to cost an astonishing $3.5 billion per mile, according to the New York Times, which calls that seven times the average cost in other cities around the world. Construction began in 2007 and hopes to wrap in 2022. 2030 sounds more realistic. And why is everything so goddamn expensive to build in the U.S.? Pardon my blasphemy. Enter the labor unions. Their motto seems to be work slowly and charge more. Sometimes don't work at all. Workers from New York City's Sandhogs Union, which is critical to such projects, cost an astounding $111 per hour in wages and benefits, according to the Times investigation. A task that could be done in Madrid with nine workers requires 24 in New York City, according to an estimate by the city's own Metropolitan Transportation Authority, and their safety record overseas is 100 times better than ours. But it gets worse. An investigation of Eastside Access Construction found that roughly 200 of 900 workers on the underground project were being paid to do nothing. I see it every time I drive by the Main Street in Round Hill. There's 17 people there, and there's one lady doing this, and then another person doing this. 
And all I want to do is just hold out my hand and drive by at 40 miles an hour and slap the living shit out of them. They're not doing anything. As such, price tags and questionable union practices are not unique to New York City. In Boston, a simple green line extension of the light rail network that is being built on the surface, not underground, is set to cost $530 million per mile. What's the result of all of this? Americans are living a 20th century infrastructure world. We can't build a 21st century one. The unions and environmentalists won't let us. It comes down to this. Regulation is not for the environment's protection. It's money. It allows kickbacks to the unions. This is what gets Democrats and liberals voted in. This is why the first thing Donald Trump did was literally slash regulation. And his plan was, in the second term of his presidency, was to go after infrastructure because he couldn't get it done in the first. There was so much regulation to cut, so much bureaucracy, so much red tape. And now it's all being put back into place. Why? Because the unions inherently go to the liberals because they know when a liberal's in office, the incessant sloth going uphill in grandma's wheelchair covered in maple syrup stuck with crazy glue on the tires is going to take place. And that means more money in their pocket. They justify an annual budget simply by spending all of it because they can, not because they need to. There's no incentive to get done early. In fact, the incentive is to push it as long as possible so you can get on the next annual budget and make even more money. This is the way it happens in America. And while we continue to overregulate and play grab ass and give it to the unions and the environmentalists, the only thing it's going to cost us besides time and money are more American lives, as more bridges, buildings, and other parts of our infrastructure system collapse. The next will be airports and planes. We need government oversight. We need regulation. But we need to let a free economy do its job, which is to build better and faster than everyone else. And those two groups will never let that happen. Folks, that's it for my show tonight. Thank you so much for watching. I hope you enjoyed Don't Unfriend Me. If you didn't, maybe come back tomorrow. If you did... Click like, follow, share, and subscribe. You can go on YouTube, click right here on the little red envelope, and you can follow me, and it will update you when I release a new show. Remember, we can agree, we can disagree, you can love me, you can hate me, just don't unfriend me. I go out like I always do with the Veteran Crisis Hotline, 1-800-273-8255-PRESS-1. Veteran Crisis Hotline is just like it sounds. It's there for veterans in crisis. 22 veterans a day commit suicide from traumatic brain injury, PTS, anxiety, depression, all very real. And the only way to get help is to talk about it. Vets don't like to talk about it. If they won't, reach out to me. I will make a phone call with you. I will fly out if I have to. If that doesn't work, they can go to don'tunfriendme.com, click on the VCL link, and be connected to a VCL operator free of charge by phone or by web conference. And if you are a civilian, never fret. They won't turn you away either. If you need help, call them. It's an emergency, and they are there for you. Folks, that is it for 184. Tomorrow, you guessed it, 185. It's Red Friday. Make sure to wear something red. Remember, everyone deployed all the veterans overseas, no longer on the home front. They deserve your respect. Wear red tomorrow and remember them. I will see you tomorrow. I am Audi 5000. Good night.